Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name is Nathan, and I'm excited today to have a guest co-host with me in the studio. He is a fellow in the Watermark Institute program, and he's serving uh, with me on the equipping team. And his name is Briggs. How's it going? Hello, Briggs. Hello. Well, the reason we decided to pull Briggs in on this series of podcasts is because he served our nation in the military for 10 years, was in the Navy. So he has experience in a lot of what we're going to be talking about today. And so today we are going to be interviewing Dave and Karen Eubank and their family. Dave and Karen and their three kids Saheli, Suzanne, and Pete are with the Free Burma Rangers, and these people basically go into hot spots around the world and just get vulnerable people out of harm's way. Because the Eubank family is on the front lines of a lot of military engagements, some of the content in this episode may be disturbing to some listeners, so listener discretion is advised. We're just going to jump right in with our guests today. We've got Dave and Karen Eubank with us and their family. So they're two girls and a young son. How old are you, Pete? 12. 12. Pete's 12. That's awesome. We're super excited about having them in the studio with us. They lead an organization called Free Burma Rangers. So first of all, thanks for being with us today. We really appreciate it. And then second of all, what is Free Burma Rangers? I mean, obviously those words mean stuff, but when you put them together, it's like, what, what's going on? So tell us about your organization and what you guys do. I I think first I, I want to thank you all. What an awesome church. And I thank God he sent his son Jesus to save us and, and show us a new way every day. My parents are missionaries. I thank them. I grew up, I was born in Texas, but I grew up as a missionary kid in Thailand. And then I was in the military. But when I got out of the military to go to seminary, in the middle of all that, there's a tribe in Burma that, that asked us for help. Burma's also called Myanmar. And it's now 69 years of civil wars. The different dictators and armies try to crush the opposition and the ethnic minority groups. So when we got involved there, it was back in 1993, we saw this tremendous need. And I just said, God, what do you want me to do? I want to do something. You know, murder's wrong, rape's wrong. That's what's happening. Villages burned. What, what can I do? I, I had very little money, no weapon. No organization. Uh, my wife and I, no kids at that point. And I just prayed and thought, I'll go and help one person. And they'll be glad and I'll be glad. And I have no f- bigger plan and just go. And as we began to help people and people began to join us um, from the ethnic groups in Burma, we became an organization, really like a disorganization, but we became kind of an organization and we needed a name. And I, I was in the second range battalion in um, the army and before special forces and the Texas Rangers were always something that meant a lot to me. You know, one or two guys in the middle of nowhere, you can't just be a tough guy and shoot people. You've got to love and respect people because you can't take on a county by yourself. And I still remember that one riot run Ranger story. And he was able to defuse the riot because one of the reputation of the Rangers, they're not kidding. But second, he had respect for the people who were protesting. And so the ethos of the name Ranger comes from our history in America of Rogers Rangers in the French and Indian yeah, War, yeah, that's right. of the different ranger groups that did guerrilla warfare for freedom of the United States in those days, up to the Texas Rangers, and then the U.S. Army Rangers. And so it, what it means to us, it's that even if you're by yourself, you can do something good. Mm-hmm. Ask God to help you, and you can do something. So free Burma is because Burma is not free. 
And so Free Burma Rangers is uh, what was a small group of men and women bonded together by love, trying to listen to God and help other people in conflict areas. Mm. So Myanmar, which, I mean, most people know it as Burma, but Myanmar, 60-odd years ago, the military took over the government and have been running it ever since, these generals, right? So Burma's a huge problem, and it's not isolated. I mean, there's problems all over the world. And so when you look at a dynamic, really complex problem, what over the last 20 years have, have you guys done as an organization to like, hey, we're going to, are we going to tackle that whole thing? Or are we just going to go where we're needed and trust the Lord? Talk, talk to us about that dynamic and how you function as an organization and what you do with that tension. I mean, you can't save every single person. Well, what we want to be, what I want to be is a child of God and, and, and remember that and uh, a brother to other people and an ambassador for Jesus. That's what I want to be. And so then I ask, Lord, what do you, what do you want us to do here? How, how do you want me to, to be? Who do I meet? And then I'm, I have no responsibility except to be his ambassador, which means I listen to him. I'm not representing myself. I'm re- representing him. That also helps that when people, when people offend me or offend us or do things that are wrong, I might get mad, but if I remember, wait a minute, I don't work for you, man. I work for him. I can take it because he's still telling me to help you. No problem. And that keeps me free. And then when I'm a bad ambassador, when I'm selfish, when I think or do the wrong things, he can, the Holy Spirit convicts me. Oh, man, Lord, forgive me, Lord. And then it's, our Lord is so gracious. Hey, go. I called you. Go. Go do it again. Go. So I think primarily in all we do, um, whether it's handing out food and medicine, um, helping people who are fleeing the attacks of the Burma army or in the case of Iraq, fleeing ISIS or in the middle of a firefight, whichever it is, Lord, help me be your ambassador. And our banner is love. That's our flag. And that's what we want to do. So when we look at a big problem, like my father-in-law, we're getting ready to go back into Iraq and Syria in about four days. And my father-in-law said, how do you deal with that? It's like a big tangled mess. What are you going to do? And he's right. And I said, I only have to do one thing, is obey Jesus and go step by step where he leads me. And in Iraq and Syria, we have relationships. My driver, who's an Iraqi army soldier, during the battle, a Mosul shot six times right next to me. He's alive. And we baptized him in the Tiger River this year. So that's a relationship. General Mustafa, commander of the 36th Armored Mechanized um, Brigade of the 9th Armored Division, tough guy, didn't like Americans before, fought with Saddam Hussein. You know, told me, Americans, you know, whatever, but I prayed to God for help. I almost lost my country, and God sent me the worst two things, an American Christian, you. <laughs> <laughs> but he's become a brother, and now he's in Basra, and they have riots and water crisis and insurgency, and he said, Dave, you're going to come back and help us. I want to because I love him. So those are the channels we have, and in Syria we have similar. In Burma, we've been there about 25 years now, 22 years with the name Free Burma Rangers, but really 25 years and that's our family there. So wherever we're invited, wherever we feel God send us, we can go there, and then we're responsible to God, and he renews us to act in love the way he wants as his ambassador. So the results finally are not up to us, they're up to him. And we're not doing it alone. We're doing it myself, my wife, my kids, our um, foreign volunteers, meaning uh, Westerners and Americans, our local um, 350 to 400 rangers that are on about 70, 80 teams in Burma. 
and then our team, one team in Iraq, one team in Syria. But that's not all there is either, because behind us are, for example, people in churches in America who pray for us, and I feel the power of that prayer, who encourage us. So people like you that said, hey man, come and talk. And I walk in this church, they go, oh man, I just got into like division headquarters. This is awesome. <laughs> and this is the big guns here. And so the prayer and support we get from churches and people here enable us to do this. So I feel we're all part of the same team. All of us are deployed in different ways. We go to the Middle East and Burma. Someone else may be in Dallas. Someone else may take a trip to London. We're all coming from God at the center, sending us out. I wanted to say something to you because that reminds me of a time that I felt in a desperate place. And it was surrounded by a village of kids that we came to visit. And yet I had that same feeling. How could I take care of all these kids? And then I thought, I can't even take care of one of them, really. I mean, really, what am I going to do? And thankfully, I felt like Jesus spoke just in that moment, and he said, you're right, you can't, but I can. Introduce them to me, and I will give them abundant life. And that has sustained me the whole 20 years and kind of was the inception of the Good Life Club, and it came from John 10.10, where Jesus said, the thief will steal and kill and destroy, but I will give them abundant life. And I love that word abundant, because it means overflowing, more than just a full cup, completely running over. And so I shortened it to good because good is easier to pronounce than abundant. But it really does represent an abundance that Jesus promises. And I don't know how that works out. I could look at that same group of kids in a village and wonder, how do you have abundant life? And yet you have to trust that God will fill the spirit in much more than the, the body and the body too at times. And uh, But that desperation when you're faced with that to remember it's not us that do it. Jesus does it. And our, my job is just to introduce people to Jesus. That's a really critical point. I mean, I think that, especially in the West, I mean, probably most most of us have a little bit of a savior complex, and by little, I mean a lot of one. A lot of times, people have this idea that we can just throw more money at it, or we can, or we can uh, give resources to it, and then just kind of back away and ding, it's done. And I remember in my time in Afghanistan. I mean, you're when you're there, and and you see the how crazy everything is, you have a very keen sense that you can't solve the problem. It's like, hey, I, I can't tackle the whole mountain. And so I think the Lord used that in my life to just show me that, hey, Nathan, this is not your job to save the world. And uh, that's my job. So let go of it. That was a huge part of my formation as a Christian, as a believer, and as a man too. Um, but it's but it's those things where you're like, oh, wait a second. I'm, it's, it's not ultimately my responsibility. It's Jesus's. And which gets into, Dave, what you were talking about a second ago. is like, hey, I'm just following Jesus where he's taking me. And uh, that's a, that has huge implications for discipleship and formation. I mean, uh, just to have people um, get that in their own lives to where it's like, okay, where am I right now? How do I be faithful to what Jesus is doing in, in the world right now? And just go. That's one of the things in the uh, uh, film trailer that I saw was you saw a need and you were just like, Lord, you know, what do I do? And you just heard, go, just go. I think from a human perspective too, one thing you said in the beginning, um, I don't have to go help everybody. I'm just going to go help one person. And I think that even makes it uh, seem digestible or attainable to people too. That's great. I could definitely do that more often instead of looking at this massive problem to tackle, just step by step, go help one person. 
And next thing you know, you might be helping a lot of people like you are, but I love how you said how that started. I'm just going to go help one person. Yeah. So your organization for 25 years has been going into hot spots, or specifically in Burma mostly, but then now that uh, in Syria, in Sudan, and Iraq. So probably most people right now are thinking, this guy takes his family there? Like they go to the jungle and to the, and where ISIS is? And oh my gosh, I, I guarantee you there's people and there's a part of my spirit as well that's going, I don't think that's super responsible. <laughs> So uh, both of y'all, again, Karen, I'd love to hear from you too. I, like Talk to us about that. What's it like uh, doing this as a family? Well, it's never been a, a, a position or a, a place of deprivation. And I think it's because, and I one of the things I would feel about mission work that has been so special to me is that God has really spoken personally to various, various sort of stages or benches that don't represent missiology per se, but they just are a clear, a clear directive from God about how I feel at the moment. And I'm not Jungle Jane. I never planned to do this. I'm a special ed teacher. And yet I wanted to marry Dave. I wanted to support his vision and I wanted to keep the family together. So I thought my contribution is I will just hike with a backpack with the kids and I can at least keep us together. And from there, of course, I met and came to love so many of the families that have been part of this and then began to just be full of the, the riches of their life. And then God slowly showed me by being in this situation, you are able to give your kids more than you would on your own. And that's really what we want. And so maybe it's a selfish ambition that, wow, this is great for my family. So I kind of narrowed it down to four things that I think God really, he gave me something manageable to think about. Um, and it, it it's clearly about the culture. They are so generous. Whenever you walk by someone's house, this is in Corinne State in Burma and where we started our family. If you walk by their house, they'll say, come eat with me, come eat with me. They don't ask where you're going or what you're doing. They want you to eat with them. I thought, how can you do that for everybody? How can you always invite people to eat? How do you have enough? But they don't think about that. They just give whatever they have. I don't know that kind of generosity. Hospitality, come anytime you want. Stay as long as you want. Bring as many people as you want. Um, we have good hospitality, but it's never been that open. And I grew up in a great family. Uh, and I just learned a whole different level of hospitality in that in that culture. And then simplicity, you have to take a bath in the river. You hunt for your food. You make do with whatever you have. And that, again, was a great testimony. I grew up in Southern California and had a great experience, but we don't specialize in simplicity there. It's a constant challenge for me every time we pack our bags that I would live simply. And then generos and then um, compassion, which I define as laying your life down for each other. And these rangers want to. They desperately want to help their people, and they know that may cost them their life, but they're willing to do it. And I don't feel like God takes your life from you every time you offer it, but it is that offering. So I really felt that I could give my kids a better place. I thought, wow, well, they could learn these things at a very deep level. And then if we survive this, we're all going to be in a great place. <laughs> yeah. Much better than if I could do it on my own strength. Um, I feel like a shallow pool compared to putting them in that environment. And then myself as well. I thought, oh, I'm going to come out of this as a better person also. So we've walked through that with these families and they've become our families. From there, we've gone on to other challenging places, other places in Burma, outside Corinth State, and then Middle East. And it represents a very different culture. And there have been a lot of challenges, as you can imagine, as a woman 
raising kids and then being in places where the city is demolished and fallen on top of each other and it's arresting and it's depressing and it's frightening and it's all those things together. And yet we've been able to talk through as the kids are older and teenagers, we actually have these debriefing times where we talk through how did that feel? How was the situation? And there's always good and bad. There's always, wow, there's such vibrant and passionate people here. And then there's, wow, that was really hard. I didn't expect that. So I think that the phases of our life, the childhood in Burma, where they were just treated as God's children, kings and queens in the kingdom of God, and just specially taken care of by that that group, and then to the Middle East, where it has been more of an adult situation, and yet now they're older, they have mature responses, and God is using them. And I'll finish off with one story that helped me in the very beginning, not not easily, but again, comprehensively for the rest of my mission life. And it was in a village that we visit a lot. And we love this place. It was like a Christmas place for us. So it was normal for us to be there. And yet this one year, the Burma army was very close. And so you could hear mortars going off and you could hear, you know, explosions in the distance. So of course that was arresting. I would think if I go off to take a shower for 15 minutes, is something going to happen? If I walk over here, if I'm away from our house, it's a little bamboo house. And so everything else is scattered around. And I remember one night laying in bed, just sort of tired of it all and saying, God, I just wish I could insulate the kids. I would like to wrap them in bubble wrap so nothing ever touches them. And I felt God say, well, you could, and you would effectively insulate them from me too. Don't you want them to call out to me? Isn't there a time when they start asking me for help? Do you want to be the source of all their answers? So I realized, wow, you're right. You know, God has a place to make a relationship with them. And there's a time when you know that you're in the right place, but things have gotten out of your control, that it is when you hand over that they can start that relationship and they can start asking God. And uh, so I was thankful. I was thankful mostly that God is real and, and comes into my experience and speaks things that are true in that moment. Doesn't make it easier in one way, but in the other way makes it sovereign. I am in control here. So I, I thank God for that. And that's that's a bit of our growing up in the jungle. So, yeah, you guys just talked about raising a family in the jungle in a really kinetic environment. And you're talking about getting shot at with, you know, uh, mortar shells and stuff in a bamboo hut in Burma. So I'd love to hear from your kids. So we've got Saheli. Saheli, how old are you? I'm 18 years old. 18. Okay. So you're, you're about to transition out of all of this um, to be on your own, which is really cool. And then Suzanne, how old are you? I'm 16. 16. Awesome. And then we've also got Pete, who uh, has been tossing around a football this morning. But Pete, go ahead and eat that mic, man. I'm Tell 12. <laughs> you're 12 years old. Awesome. So Haley, I'm just going to pass it to you first. You've obviously been uh, with your parents the longest. So <laughs> what was it like growing up with parents who are taking you to the jungle? Well, it was very exciting, very different, very wild. And that way we didn't really know what was happening from day to day basis. Some days we were traveling to different villages, some days we were training, some days we were swimming in waterfalls, some days we were doing recons of the Burma Army, some days we were doing kids programs, and some day we were just hiking all day and all night. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. So there was, a, I mean, obviously that's like a, that's a full spectrum of all kinds of things. I think most of the people who are listening to this, the vast majority of them have no paradigm to put that in. 
So talk, I mean, most of them are probably thinking like, Hey, well, like, where did you go to school? Like, did, did, who were your friends? Like, uh, uh, did you, (laughs) yeah, totally. So, um, so talk to us about that. I mean, how, like just answer some of those practical questions. How did you go to school? What about your social life? What did that look like? So I had mom as my teacher, did homeschool. So mom taught me basic skills of math and reading and science and then I had daddy school taught me how to read a compass and shoot a gun and repel off a cliff and cross a rope bridge and um, social life involved my siblings my monkeys my horses and all of the Karen uncles and aunts that I have Mm, ethnic people in Burma yeah the community really came around that's that's awesome Um, what about you Suzanne what's it like to be a part of this family for me being part of this family it's very full and the opportunities that we get are I wouldn't be able to even imagine how we would get them and it's very full being with the people that we're with and we learn so many more skills than I thought we would learn anywhere else mm-hmm. and it was growing up in Burma we didn't know any different yeah and so comparing it to American life we're just kind of like uh, yeah. So talk. So sure. talk. Yeah. Talk about that for a minute. When you see American life, what? <laughs> how? What do you think about it? Sue, so, tell them about lunch. Lunch. Oh, we love cafeteria food. It's nice. so good. Nice. Yes. What? No, what like, about cafeteria food do you love? Okay. So growing up in Burma, you have rice for every meal. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And that's part of your plate. And when they ask you, "Have you eaten?" They only say, "Have you eaten rice yet?" And if you haven't, then you haven't eaten. And so when we came to American schools and we would visit them or in Thailand, there's an international school and they would have American lunch. It was heaven. There was amazing (laughs) lasagna. People told us it was gross because it was like frozen for 15 years or so, but it was so good (laughs) Yeah, because all we knew was snake and eel and... Sometimes we would have some Monkey. deer or dog jerky, and so that yeah. chicken pot pie and tater tots were really good. <laughs> really good. <laughs> They're really good. Bro, any that that's love in any language right there. French fries and pot pies. It's awesome. <laughs> what about you, Pete? So as a twelve-year-old and as a and as the boy in the family, I mean, what what is all of this like? What's the dynamic of growing up in a family like this? It's a lot of fun growing up in this family. Why Why is it fun? Just because we get to do all these things, like go to California, surf, hunt in Alaska, go to Burma. I lead, I help lead my sisters on the horse and mule teams. Nice. That's awesome. You lead us. <laughs> I help you lead. <laughs> I'm your supervisor. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So do you guys feel like looking at American life, do you guys look at American life and go, man, I really wish this or are you just like, uh, talk to us about your perception of that life. And um, because so many people in our culture and society, like really long for the Southern California, Orange County, comfortable life. You guys growing up in kind of the opposite of that. Talk to us about your perception of that and your experience comparatively. So when I was little, I actually just thought about this this morning. I thought living in like a little suburb or neighborhood was so cool because we'd always transfer from houses to houses, bamboo to jungle floors or anything like that. But now growing older, you kind of realize, yeah, the American culture is cool. Kind of like an animal you see at the zoo. You just look at it, but you don't really want to be in the cage. 
Yeah. And it's kind of, <laughs> I'm sorry, everyone out there. No, it's great. It's just different for us because for us, there's the rest of the world out there that's a lot more broad, especially coming from an Asian community. The mm. culture is way different. Yeah. Like here, there's a lot of rules. You can't stack 10 people on a motorcycle or people can't ride on the top of the roofs of your cars. And we just think that's silly because why wouldn't you ride on the roof of your cars? Or why wouldn't you stack 10 or 12 people on a motorcycle? And it's just, it's a really different life that we're like, we like that we get to be a part of it and like have things or experience washing machines and dry cleaners. <laughs> but we we do also love our monkeys and waterfalls and raging rivers mm, as well. Yeah, love that. What about you, Suzanne? What would you add to that? For me, growing up in Thailand, and just going into high school, I started to think about that more because we would go on mission trips to Iraq and into Burma and I'd have to leave my friends behind because they would stay in school. And for there are times where I'd be like, oh, gosh, I just want to stay in Thailand. I just want to live the social life, live the teenage dream. But then I had to take a step back and look at that and be like, well, would I really want to do that and give up all these opportunities that God wants to give me? And I was, I thought, no, I, I can't do that. That would just be wrong because I looked at it and I thought I could go to Iraq and it's obviously what God wants us to do. And we've prayed about it so many times and that's where he wants us to be. Or I could just disobey him and be unhappy about going and unhappy about our mission trips and just be completely ungrateful for what he's given us or I could look at every opportunity as very potent and make the best out of every situation and look for all the good because if you spend time wishing you were somewhere else or wishing you were being with other people then you waste the whole your whole time and you miss little gems that's got that God has given you yeah two things one tell us a story Tell us a story that you guys love to recount. Like if y'all are sitting around and you're just telling stories about crazy things that have happened, what's like that top one that you always remember and talk about? I'll tell a small one. This is just a really short one that I'm, I'll let Suzanne take a bigger one. But this is just kind of like a funny one. Anyway, we were in Mosul. We just gotten there and this was in the beginning of the fighting when it started to happen and when the Iraqi army started to push in. And ISIS was still taking, had a lot of the city. We were still on the west side. Anyway, so we were all in this abandoned house and the windows were blown out. And we were just all hanging out downstairs and talking with each other. And there you have to wash your own clothes and then hang them up on the roof because that's the only way they're going to get dry. Anyway, so I see Suzanne come down the stairs rushing. She's out of breath. And she tells us all, you know, for once, I would just like to hang my clothes up without getting shot at by ISIS snipers, okay? Is that so hard? <laughs> and that's when one of our team members, Sky Barkley, he's one of our emergency medics, said, you know what, Sadan? If you had a Twitter account, that'd be so cool. Yeah. Memes. If I could just do my laundry yeah. without getting shot at. <laughs> totally. There was a wall. But yeah. it was about maybe three feet tall, so you had to crawl on your hands and knees, yeah, and the rope exposed, was yeah. just at the wall, and you just throw it over because you don't want to put your hands up. You just throw the clothes over, and once they're on the other side, kind of even them out, and then crawl back downstairs. Yeah. yeah. What, Peter, do you have any stories? Well, once we were in Mosul, and while we were in Mosul, we usually stay at house to house, moving along with the Iraqi army as they push into Mosul. But us kids and me and my family 
usually stay like a mile or two back from the fighting. And so usually we stay in houses like along the way with the Iraqi commander. And while I was there, it's not really a funny story, but I would normally like look for things, just random things that I could find to make things out of. So one time I found a kite and then I had to put, I made a, I tried to fix the kite, but it ended up going up and get caught in, getting caught in some wires. And then, then I realized that I should probably get some way to take it down because they might think it was ISIS flag. So there you go. It's a good plan. Yeah. You should probably take down that ISIS flag. Oh, I mean a kite. <laughs> That's awesome. You have any stories from Burma, Sue? Well, the one that comes to mind is about three years ago, maybe four years ago. All of us kids, we just started the mission and we left our camp with all the horses and mules. And there were no American volunteers that I remember that went with us. And it was about a six or seven hour hike to this next village. But the horses had to had to go a different way because there were a lot of mudslides that had happened. And so all of us kids and I think there was two free Burma Ranger teams who had just graduated who were not from the area, who were from a totally different side of Burma were with us and then one mule man and he didn't really know and the he way. didn't know the way this new way and so we're riding what could go wrong <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so we leave about noon and i was looking at it and i was like all right we're leaving noon we'll probably get there around six at night we'll be good and we left we got to the river which is it's a big river there's lots of rapids and you take your horse across on a raft and you hold it her halter and you pull yourself across on the raft and then you do that for about 15 horses and once we got to the other side we were making great time I was like this is going to be a great trip and we were riding along and all of a sudden I looked and we had passed the turnoff the normal turnoff and I'm like that's normal they're probably just going the mule route well we passed the mule route as well I thought that's very interesting and we got onto two ridges over on this big mountain range and we were going up and I started looking at my compass and I was like, this is not the right way. But okay, I mean, the mule man knows where he's going. And occasionally I'd ask him and be like, oh yeah, we're definitely going to this village. And so just listen to him. We're all riding along. It's getting dark now and we are nowhere near Thadada because it's, a, it's all rice field. So it's really lowland. It's flat. And we're on the top of a mountain range and like there's wind howling yeah, yeah. and right. we're high up in elevation. Something's not so right. So we're wondering. Right. And, we're, and you know you're close to Thadada when you get to rice fields and we're nowhere near rice fields. We're near like cliffs. And so we're riding along and then we get it gets dark and the team that's with us, they did not know where we were going. And they were not from the area and they could not speak the language of the area. Mm. And so they said, oh, we're just going to camp here. And we got to this kind of shack with this family. And they said, oh, we're just going to camp here because that's a good place to camp. We'll get there in the morning. I was like, no, we're not camping here. And so they got out their plates to eat dinner and we let them eat dinner. <laughs> we didn't eat dinner. But yeah, Suzanne and I dinner. were, what is it, very concrete and say, we will hike all night if we have to find the camp. <laughs> And so we let them eat dinner and then they were like, we're going to sleep here. And so without letting them have any time, we ran over, untied all the horses because we tied them up while they were eating. And we untied them, got on our horses and started herding them down the trail so they would just have to follow. Nice. And so we kept going and the mule man, he'd caught up by now and he was leading us. And we got through this village and the new trail, I couldn't recognize it at all. And I hadn't been in that village. Wait, is it still dark? It was still point? dark. Yeah, it was yeah, about yeah. nine or so. Yeah, it was very dark. And we went through this village and I couldn't recognize it. 
just because it was a new route through the village and it was dark and I could re couldn't recognize it. I thought I knew where we were going, but oh, I missed the turn, which would have taken us about an hour to get to that idea because we once at that village we'd met up with the real trail, and I saw the turn and it was right behind the tree. You're supposed to walk around the tree and get on the trail, but I just couldn't recognize it because we were on this different trail. And so I thought, oh. Oh, I, that's an interesting tree. <laughs> and so we took a right and we started climbing up, up, up. And I was like, we just got down. And we could start climbing even higher. And then the wind was howling and the trail just stopped. And she says, hey, who's leading? And I was like, uh, me. <laughs> and she's like, Haley, do you know where you're going? I said, no, I'm just following the trail. <laughs> and so the trail is leading and it stopped. Yeah, because <laughs> there's a lot of um. There's a lot of wild animals in that area, but there's lots, also a lot of tame water buffalo that just kind of wander and make their own trails because they're big. <laughs> and the trail just stopped, and they're just water buffalo tracks just going in a direction. I thought, oh, no. And so the mule man, he's like, I don't know where to go. I'm lost. And we're like, great. And so we're like, we're going to go down the hill because that's where that's going to help us do something. I mean, down the hill, lower elevation, there's going to be rice fields. We're probably going to know where we are. And so we start going down the hill, and by that time, it's very late at night, and I started falling asleep on my horse. And our monkeys are starting to get grouchy, and right. they want to be put up in their Right, I'm carrying my, sleep. yeah, I was carrying my monkey because she was a baby, and so she was sleeping. And so I'm carrying her, and I'm walking, and then I actually fell asleep, and I, like, fell over on the trail, and my horse kind of kicked me and woke me up, and so I got up, and then I hopped on him, and I fell asleep, and I woke up to this big jolt. And we had jumped onto the rice fields, and it was a beautiful moment. We were all so happy. We rode on the rice fields for about half an hour, and then we saw the lights of the Dada, and all the horses probably knew because they just took off. And there's this big water ditch that you had to go, and they just jumped down at full speed, jumped back up, and just took off across the rice paddies, which are they can be pretty dangerous for horses to run on because there's these huge holes in them from the water buffalo, but they didn't care. They were just jumping these dikes and running, and we got to the Dada, and Daddy was like, oh, I'd figure you guys were going to end up leading that. <laughs> <laughs> what time was it when you guys made it? It was like midnight or, so. or something. Yeah. It was really late. Nice. Do you bring the monkeys everywhere with you, these little? Everywhere. Everywhere That's that awesome. we can take them, except we can't take them on the airplane. Oh, yeah, nice. What are, what are their names? Our monkeys' names are Kid and my monkey's name Maya. was Maya. Maya. Yeah. She recently passed. Uh, oh, sorry. And then you got a dog, right? It's my dog. Oh, it's your dog. <laughs> <laughs> he had a mongoose. Yeah. But I the, but I watched a video on your YouTube channel, which, by the way, you're listening to this. Go check out uh, their YouTube channel, Free Burma Rangers. But uh, I watched a video where it rec I think recently uh, you had a dog named Nineveh, right? Yes, we got the dog Nineveh in East Mosul in a place called Al Rashidia. There you go. Was okay. it just a stray or? Well, in Iraq, the breed of dog called the Saluki or they're like greyhounds basically. Yeah. And they're very like, they're a sign of like rich and prosperity. And so most of like the ISIS leaders had them. And so when we, when the Iraqi army took over a block, they'd find a lot of these dogs and they would just be turned into strays, basically. Yeah. And so we took Nineveh with us. You redeemed it. She was actually given to <laughs> us by an Iraqi general who had rescued a bunch of those dogs. And he said, hey, do you, want, do you want one of these dogs as a gift? And we said, sure, we'll take it. Yeah. And then mom had to spend how many weeks trying to get it through customs all the way back to Thailand. So <laughs> thank you, mom. There you go. I love it. When we first got her, she was shaking on the floor because they just 
rescue that area from ISIS and then they'd clear room to room and they found her in a corner somewhere. And she would just huddle on the floor and she wouldn't move for three days. And so I slept by her. I put my little my little army cot, which was actually a uh, a stretcher, but it was the most comfortable thing. And I was told by a Marine it was bad luck, but it felt comfy. And so I put that right next to where she was and put some old tattered blankets that were abandoned down. And then she slept on that, and I just slept beside her. And I would do school beside her, and then I fed her. And by the third day, she would kind of walk around. She was very scared, did not want to go outside. But we, I kind of picked her up, and I walked her outside, and she went to the bathroom and whatever. And then she came back in, and she would lay on the floor again. And then by a week, she was still pretty timid, but she would walk around with us. And then we decided we have to take her back to Thailand. And ev- once everyone saw that she was on a leash and with us, everybody wanted her. Yeah, we were like, yeah, yeah. Can, can we have that dog? That's Sorry. Crazy. No. I'll say one thing about that dog. As we, I was in front of the family. We were in the, in, during the Mosul battle in El Rashidia. And it was a fight down the streets and multiple suicide bombers attacking us. And we had a lot of casualties. But I mean, we finally pushed through ISIS. I remember the, one of the first things I saw was a man chained to a tree, dead, all cut up. And there were dead bodies everywhere. And then right after that, um, we found the dog. And that dog was broken. I mean, it couldn't stand up. It was scared of everything, would hardly eat. And I watched the kids, and especially Suzanne, love it and love it and love it. And I remember when he got back to Thailand with the dog, who can now jump literally 10 feet high, up to a basketball um, hoop. Unbelievable. These dogs are blinding fast, too. And she just is full of love and joy and jumping around. And a friend of mine who's a missionary said, he's one of my chaplains, Paul Bradley, he said, Dave, that's what love does. Look what love did. And I think no matter what we face in life, and we face people maybe that are broken and we don't really like them and what's wrong with them, love, love, love. Just like the love Jesus gave for us that saves us and helps us, we ask him for love and it changes people's lives. It overcomes everything. And that dog to me was a perfect illustration of a broken animal, terrified, hopeless, and now completely alive. So I just wanted to add that. Yeah, it was loved back to life. Well, thank you all for tuning in today. Hope you enjoyed the talk with the Eubank family. Tune in next week for part two of our three-part series. And subscribe, tell your friends, and any questions, you can email us at equippingpodcast at watermark.org.